This is part two of our Month of the Mask, where we examine the story and history of the original Common Rider series, as well as its multiple interpretations over the years, all leading up to Shin Common Rider. If you haven't listened to part one yet, where we talk about the show, go do that. Then hop back onto this episode where we'll cover Shotaro Ishinomori's Common Rider, the manga. Welcome back to Midnight Grappler Animals, home of Flub Nation. I'm your host, Lan, and with me, I've got a man modified by Shocker himself, Salt M. Bank. Salt, we've already gone over the show in part one, so I think it's time to really let loose and do this. Do the, the comic, which is surprisingly different from the show. Yeah, would you believe it? <laughs> Sheena Murray <laughs> took some liberties. <laughs> As we mentioned in the prior research section of our show episode, Ishinomori was commissioned to make a manga of the series uh, to run alongside with the show. Uh, this started in April of 1971, just like a week or two after the show had started airing. Uh, it was in Weekly Bokura magazine for a while, and then that magazine shut down, so it moved to Weekly Shonen magazine. And it basically ran through the entirety of 1971. So it ended on December 26th of that year, which is, I think, the day after the Colonel Zoll death episode, the Christmas episode. Keep that in mind going into, you know, like the deviations and where some of these arcs go. Uh in comparison to where the show was at at the time. Yeah, it was collected into four volumes back in 1972, and then it was localized officially uh, into one fucking brick. It, it's like 872 pages. <laughs> it I've used... Uh, I'm not going to say I've used it as a weapon, but if I, if I had to, I could use it as a weapon. I've got uh, a question about this one brick versus four volumes. Mm -hmm. Is this everything, or is this some selected material? This is everything for the original run. Got it. Uh, there were subsequent Kamen Rider manga done by other artists. Right, uh, but this is all Vashinomori's original stuff. This is all, exactly. Cool. This is everything that Ashinomori did. Yeah, this one was put out by Seven Seas. Seven Seas had already put out... Uh, Ishinomori's Go Ranger, I think a year before this one. This one wasn't translated by the Nibley sisters, like the Go Ranger manga, but rather by Kumar Siva Subramaniam. This is a sweet little package. Like, I haven't read manga on the regular, and I, so I don't really have, like, a sense of standard for what I should expect for manga collections, but I, I thought this was top shelf. Like, this, everything about this was really nice production quality. Yeah, it's incredibly solid. You know, the cover... Again, it is 872 pages, I want to say, but it feels like it's not going to come apart after one reading. Uh, the covers are all really solid. It starts with 18 color pages, which are done really, really beautifully. Uh, and this translation's fantastic, you know, throughout the entire thing. 
I like that Siva Subramaniam uh, did last name, first name instead of first name, last name. I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, yeah, solid work from Seven Seas. If you haven't checked out other Seven Seas stuff, uh, you should. They put out Even Though We're Adults by Takako Shimura. Uh, and I think they're one of the few American manga publishers that are actually unionized. Oh, hell yeah. So, good for them. Shall we get into the actual history of the book and, and uh, Ishinomori's influences? I want to start with Ishinomori because... Ishinomori should be way more celebrated than he actually is in the West. Uh, you know, like everyone talks about Tezuka as the god of manga, but Ishinomori is the true king of manga. And it's weird just how little of his work is translated. You know, like this is a guy that holds the Guinness World Record for the most amount of comics or the most pages of comics produced by one author in the entire world. And yet we only have like the most minute fraction of it actually available in English. Even the French have us beat at this. The <laughs> French. I mean, that's that's funny you say the the French because I when I was reading this, I was seeing some stuff in his style that reminded me of Asterix, and I don't know if that was coincidental or if he was influenced by that or if Asterix came. Yeah. It's a variety of things. Um, I think the yeah. noses especially comes from his time working with Tezuka. And, you know, like, he pushes it on his own. The chain of influence is funny there because you have Ishinomori working as Tezuka's assistant and, you know, like, sort of growing his artistic style with the noses especially there. And then Naoki Urasawa, a creator of Pluto, Monster every other thing that comics critics are telling you to read <laughs> and his noses are also directly influenced by Ishinomori and Urasawa himself has listed Ishinomori as a direct influence on his work. Ishinomori he is not only one of the greatest creators of all time but I think he is your favorite creator's favorite creator. Mm. I think that's the best way to put it. Your favorite mangaka's favorite mangaka, that's Shotaro Ishinomori. Yeah, I sense in, like, comics, there. I mean, <laughs> we've talked about it before, there's this stupid discourse of, like, manga versus comics, but it's all just comics. And, yeah. like, if you're a visual storyteller, like, you you got to read Ishinomori. Like, the, the, his, his art is, it's unparalleled. Like, the, the how much he is doing per panel, per page... There, there is so much you could like deconstruct and and just this was such a joy to read <laughs> i'll come back to art later yeah so we'll we'll do a bit of a rundown on ishinomori's life he was born on january 25th 1938 he was a member of the yakiaro sedai or the yakiaro generation the burnt ruins generation um him along with the producer uh of common writer toru hirayama which we mentioned in the past or the last episode this generation, I want to bring it up because it really plays into the influences in Ishinomori's work. The Yakiaro generation is a demographic of people who were children during the firebombings throughout the Asia-Pacific theater of World War II. So they had lived through these firebombings. They had seen family members and friends be directly affected by it. And that then played into their work, you know, being more anti-war, pro-humanist, 
you know, like pushing these messages of humanism and coexistence. So Ishiya Mori wanted to be a film director, and that obviously didn't sit well with his parents at the time, who just wanted him to eke out a proper living. The only person who would support him at the time was his older sister, Yoshie, and with her he moved to Tokyo. And it's, it's a tragedy, because Yoshie suffered from respiratory disease, she was one of the biggest influences in Ishinomori's life, and she passed away in 1958 from a severe asthma attack, and that had a very deep and profound impact on Ishinomori himself. Last episode, we brought up that he was the one who introduced Ruriko to the show. Again, this is, I feel, a lasting after effect of the impact that his sister had on him. Creating these strong, independent female characters that aren't just just love interests you know they are also unique characters that stand on their own so in tokyo uh, ishinomori then lived in tokyo aso uh, which is an apartment that osamu tezuka and most notable mangaka at the time uh, were living in he worked as an assistant to tezuka on uh, astro boy and sayuki so Ishinomori then blew up in popularity after winning the Shogakukan Manga Award in 1968 for his series Sabu and Ichi's Detective Tales. Uh, he would then go on to win the, the award again in 1988 for Hotel and uh, Japan Inc. Uh, Japan Inc. was actually localized in the U.S. and I do own a copy. It, one day I do want to make a video on that book because that book is a very interesting beast in and of itself given that the only reason it was localized in the U.S. was to be used as reading material for college courses. Hmm. Yes, and again, this is a, a an award-winning manga. But yeah, Ishinomori, he, he was a goldmine of ideas. You know, like he spawned countless franchises like Kikaider, Super Sentai, Robot Detective, uh, Akumizer 3... Uh, Cyborg 009, uh, Robocon, but he is such a well-rounded creator too. He has dipped his toes into pretty much every major genre that you could think of, uh, which makes sense, you know, like a guy with his volume of work. You, you can ex kind of expect that, but it's interesting to think and to see how all those different genres, all that work in those different genres then impacts his work on Kamen Rider. In what sense? Well, for instance, Ishinomori started off working with shoujo manga. So like manga mm. oriented towards girls, mm -hmm. right? Like with uh, Sarutobi Echan. That influence and that work there, I think, plays into his portrayal of female characters in Kamen Rider. Yeah, the way he <clears throat> writes women, like I thought it was really interesting how you said, you know, they're, the women are not just like love interests. And there, there's really like a, a sincerity. It's, it's, it's a sincerity and like that, that shouldn't be too much to ask for, but you read some of the other comics coming out of the time and you realize that that's kind of special, especially coming from like a, a male creator primarily writing for boys. Right, exactly. You know, like, when you compare this to, like, Go Nagai, right? You can really see the stark difference <laughs> yeah. between their two approaches. <laughs> but yeah, Ishinomori was such a crazy talent. And then he died in 1998, 
uh, on January 28th, so three days after his birthday, uh, of heart failure. Uh, three years later, in 2001, the Ishinomori Manga Museum was erected in Ishinomaki, which is not too far from where Ishinomori was born. And yeah, if you want to visit that, you can do that now. It's been open for the past 22 years. It was briefly co closed because of the 2011 Tohoku earthquake. If you are a fan of Ishinomori's work and you want to really get the true experience, I think you should go to Japan and, and uh, go to the museum. You know, <laughs> the other thing you could do is you can subscribe to the Midnight Grappler Animals Patreon, and if we get enough of you on there, then we can pay for newly found Ishinomori scholar land to go to Japan and do a field trip report. I, I actually ended up doing a lot of research into Ishinomori for this. <laughs> yeah, this is great, man. I'm I'm learning so much. This is this is really fucking sick. I mean, there's very little information about Ishinomori in English, which is honestly a tragedy. And I, I want to keep reiterating this throughout this episode: is like Ishinomori does not get the flowers he deserves from a non-Japanese audience. A lot of people just see him as an alt Tezuka or, you know, like a Tezuka light. When I think that's just horrible. First off, you shouldn't be comparing the two. I get it. There's influences there, but you really shouldn't be comparing the two. But yeah, it's very disingenuous to like consider him just, you know, Tezuka light. Yeah, I mean, e even just to like limit the comparison to other Japanese creators, like he was really clearly influenced by the West in certain ways. Ways. Mm -hmm. So let's talk influences. We love influences here. Think back to 1971, where things were at in the pop culture space. Uh, you know, you had the permeation of American superheroes in Japan, like Spider-Man, Batman. Uh, by that point, Batman had already gotten a manga um, adaptation. Um, but at that point, you also had this proliferation of cyborg and android uh storytelling you know like obviously you had uh, astro boy but you also had eight man you had ishinomori's own take with cyborg 009 and so you can see where these things start to coalesce again you have other influences too like golden bat uh, tiger mask especially uh, and then you have the ultra series so there is a nice cacophony of influences here you can see bits and pieces of of each one but they never overtake or overshadow the end product, I feel. I want to talk about that Batman influence for a moment. Because, uh, you know, not, not only do we have the Batman kaijin that appears early on in the comic and the show and the bat influence of the costumes of the uh, Gelshocker troops, but it should be noted that the Batman manga was created by Jiro Kuwata. And, you know, if you're uh, even only only so up to date with the modern like batman comics and, and media in the west we we've seen that manga like sort of memeified it was in the brave and the bold cartoon grant morrison references it um but that's that's a fantastic comic and it like one one thing jiro kawada does that's really fascinating is like he said clowns and in crossword puzzle pros that's not something japanese people are going to be scared of they're going to want to see like m mutants right and so the villains that he makes in the batman manga i think can be said might be partly an influence on the common writer villains yeah i could see that and also like i i, I even see jiro kawada's style closer to ishinomori's than uh, tezuka like uh 
Kuata was also the eight-man creator. So that that's, right. again, the cyborg connection. So let's talk about the cultural landscape in Japan, because believe it or not, it actually plays a pretty big part in the later chapters of this book. Again, in 1971, you have friend of the podcast Shinzo Abe, arrest and piss. <laughs> His great-uncle Eisaku Sato was the prime minister of Japan, uh, Sato, to, to put it lightly, was a, a cunt. <laughs> Just he oversaw an era of proliferation of economic growth, and obviously that means rapid industrialization. Uh, and was heavily criticized by student groups for his vocal support of America's war in Vietnam, and also the United States-Japan Security Treaty, which basically allowed uh, American. Uh, American military to operate on Japanese soil. Uh, and I want to go back to the rapid industrialization thing because another big thing at the time was uh, this pushback on pollution-related diseases. Uh, the two major diseases that will come up often uh, in this book are the Kawasaki disease, which is related to air pollution, and the Minamata disease, which is uh, related to uh, river pollution and lake pollution. So Japan, in 1971, again, it was going towards that bubble era. You know, things were looking good from an outsider perspective, but there was a deep, deep rot at the core. And that is what Ishinomori wanted to hit at and want to point out in his manga. Salt, is there anything you want to add about the <laughs> cultural state of Japan in 1971? <laughs> Um, no, I mean, that's a really good question. I was getting a little lost in thought there because there's a whole parapolitical scandal with, like, some payoffs between, like, the CIA and Lockheed Martin and the Japanese government in the 70s, and I'm really fuzzy on the details right now, but I just got that little wheel in my brain rolling, and I'm like, I wonder if that was Isaku Sato. <laughs> well... Well, let's uh, let's add that in the show notes. Yeah, it could and, be. And that then would be funny. Re- <laughs> and then listeners can pay us a dollar to read our show notes yeah, on yeah. Patreon. I mean, you know, I can praise Ishinomori's storytelling endlessly, but Ishinomori's politics are really fascinating, and for the most part, really good. So it's cool watching the Common Writer series, which, you know, touches on some of these politics, but then, like, you, you read this, and even though I don't know all of these specifics that you're talking about, like, it, it's it's way more there in the comic. You're like, damn, like, yeah. there is a lot that's wrong with the Japanese landscape in the most literal sense. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, like, a place in crisis, and I really appreciate uh, Shinomori's sincerity in depicting that. Yeah, I think it is that perspective that he has being someone who lived through world war ii to right. you know, not take again because on the surface it looks like japan's doing really well you know like economic growth trades looking good it really feels like they've started recovering after world war ii but the specific few know that there is something wrong there's something wrong this foundation is built on terror on horror on the subjugation of japanese people it's crazy to think that he was allowed to get away with mm-hmm. a lot of this in the manga. You know, like, I feel like... I kept thinking that, too. Every single time he explicitly mentions it, too. Like, there's no... There are very few allegories here, I want to say. <laughs> you know, like, everything is very explicitly on the page. You know, like, when he says, 
leukemia. He means leukemia. There's no like bullshit disease or anything. He will mention it by name. And it it's crazy to think that the editors were like, yeah, no, it's cool. Go for it, man. <laughs> I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. I mean, so with, with these dark times, you're going to need a proportionally dark hero, right? Right. And so, before... so who? Or... Okay, you know, you, you you do the segue. I like the segue. I know where you're going. You do the segue. So before we get common writer, there arises Skullman. This is kind of common writer 1.0, or you know, the... it's like zero. Yeah, zero. Thank you. I yeah. say. And it's, and it's not like a straight line from Skullman to common writer. If you listen to part one, Land was breaking that down. But this is this 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 Skullman creation of Shinomori is way fucking darker than Common uh, Rider. So Shinomori creates Skullman as a one hundred page one shot. Puts that out in the Weekly Shonen magazine in nineteen seventy. Skullman's a huge hit. Sells over one point five million copies. That's a fucking crazy number. I just want to pause on that number for a second. That's that is a. The people loved it, bro. The people really want to see more Skullman. I want to see more Skullman. So then Comixology puts out a digital English release of Ashinomori Skullman in 2012, but that went down with the ship when Comixology's site folded. Um, Yeah, that's a whole other thing we're not getting out into here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All Uh, all I can say is fuck you, Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) So the manga received a revival from Kazuhiko Shimamoto, who was known for his character designs on G Gundam. Uh, That revival comes out in 1998. It acts as a continuation of Ishinomori's work. Ishinomori himself helped with the plotting while Shimamoto scripted into the artwork. The revival lasted seven volumes. I should also note that this is, you know, like right at the end of Ishinomori's life. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the last things he did. The man was a workaholic. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's partly the reason why he died. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So Ishinomori is working wonders, implementing elements of both popular shonen manga aesthetics with more mature adult gekika aesthetics with, you know, gangsterism and noir. Common writer, a lot of cross hatching, you know, a lot of cross hatching here. Uh, a lot again, it's crazy to think that there's, or it's amazing to see that there is such a synthesis in the way he mixes the two together. You know, you'll have these very cartoony looking people, but then it cuts to a very grim, dark, cross hatched uh, depiction of like a guy getting blown up, <laughs> you know blown away with a, a gun yeah i mean that i was trying to make that crack about this being you know common rider 0.05 or whatever but like this really is the ancestor to common rider like the the sort of that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> the echoes of skull man are, are st- permeate common rider right that that violence is still kind of under the surface and sometimes pops out yeah do you have anything else you want to mention about skull man yeah, I want to talk a bit more about the art. I see, again, it's not the Tezuka influence I see here. I, I see more of a Shigeru Mizuki influence, with especially his cartooning here. A lot of the faces remind me of something from, like, Gigi no Kitaro. And <laughs> there's also some weirdly prescient commentary about the 3D TV fad. Yeah, we'll include that in the notes. That's a very funny panel. 
Like that's yeah, that's like weirdly looking into the future. What he's doing there again, forty years early. Yeah, <laughs> before a three D TVs were even a thing. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think the art's good. But I think while the foundations are all there, it also does feel lesser than again. His work in Common Rider was only a year later, and it still feels like a significant jump from the art in this. Dear reader, we. We're going off about all this history and context, but it really is key for understanding this book. So thanks for sticking with us. Now we get into the the comic itself. So right off the bat, one of the first traits of the comic that struck me is whereas the environmentalism comes up a lot in the show, it's so much more front and center here. And I've, I've included this this panel it's like right after one of Common Rider's first transformations, and it's like a poem or like music lyrics. He's, he's riding the motorcycle. It's a beautiful splash page. He says, Oh, wind, cry and howl. Raise a maelstrom within me. Become a storm. Mother Nature, your energy is my strength. Like that, that cry to Mother Nature, that, that rage, like that goes really hard, and that, that makes this Common Rider way different than our TV common writer. Yeah, there's a really strong appeal to him being a warrior of nature and a warrior, a defender of uh, the environment in this one. Which, yeah. again, you do see it a bit in the show, but I think it's not anywhere near as front-facing or as uh, seen repeatedly as it is in the in the comic. Uh, another really big difference between the common writer comic character and the TV common writer is the scarring. You know, both of these open with common writer being abducted by Shocker, getting operated on, becoming cyborgified. Those are nearly identical in the two incarnations. But in the book, uh, Comic Hongo has this facial scarring that facial scarring from the shocker surgeries comes out when he's enraged or, or agitated and then they'll they'll disappear again when he's calmer and done fighting uh, really cool signature look for the character uh, do you know anything about why that didn't make it into the show just too grim i think yeah it was partly it was a too grim but i think also the effects required to create the facial scarring yeah. probably would have been you know, a bit more difficult. I think they tried playing with it a bit in the first couple episodes, but then they quickly gave up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the scarring here definitely works way, way more. Uh, and it's something to keep in mind as we go into the adaptations in our future episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, the suit and mask serve another purpose in this too. Like in the, it, it's nebulous kind of in both, but like in the show, Hongo hits these quick wins either by falling off a cliff or usually more frequently riding his motorcycle. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll transform via that wind turbine in his belt. And I feel like that does happen later in the book. But in the, the first time we see him suit up, he just, like, manually pulls his mask and helmet, like, out of a compartment in the motorcycle. <laughs> Yeah. And he says it like, I need to hide these scars, right? So it's more utilitarian in that sense. One thing I really like about the suit stuff here is, you know, Ishinomori, again, a a genius, but he's also a genius at, like, pulling up random sci-fi bullshit. (laughs) You know, you get two pages, there's two pages, one for Hongo, one for Ichimonji, where it's just, like, uh, a breakdown of what they're 
suit is and what's in their suit. You know, like, he's, like, <laughs> he's coming up with, like, all these explanations for how his, like, chest pieces are, like, huge outside ex- exoskeleton lungs. You know, like, how the intake works and... Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like complete comics bullshit, and I love it. Yeah, it's extremely the kind of shit that you'd be into if you like those. Um, oh, you know those encyclopedia books that were put out, and they would like diagram Star Wars ships. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Very like much the, that energy. The DK books. Yes, yes, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that stuff rocks, and it it works well too because even though it's sci-fi bullshit, it more firmly establishes a common writer as a cyborg hero. Um, again, mm-hmm. in in yeah. the show, we're told all the time he's a cyborg, and you know, sometimes the storytelling matches that. But there's nothing we see about him that makes him less human in terms of like his skin, his muscle, any any of that. Uh, right. Another huge difference in the book, I love this, is he. <laughs> while there is some really fantastic violence by Common Rider in the show, he is so much more violent in the book. I, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's we'll so we'll cool. get into that with the specific chapters, but the violence is incredible. Yeah, it, it rocks. I mean, I just have a panel I copied into our notes here where he's riding his motorcycle and he like kicks his foot through uh the shocker rider's face and just like blood exploding out of the head it it rocks i love it it's 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 fun um and then one more uh note about politics before we get into that chapter by chapter it's it's a thrill to see what a fiery lefty ishinomori is um his his politics are you know surprisingly progressive for the time but you know it's he's not perfect obviously and i'm not trying to play like a a purity test so you know we do see some sexism emerge in certain places and some racism but you know i I think what's more important is ishinomori's desire for a demilitarized japan and his respect for the environment that that rings so sincere you're obviously not going to get something 100 percent perfect uh for a guy who is pretty much trying to work around the limitations of 1971 but again for the time it was it was really really progressive so do you want to go through these chapter by chapter and kind of just hit some high points in each chapter sure thing yeah so uh, again like we mentioned the original manga was divided into four volumes but it has four or six arcs or uh, we're gonna say chapters here but they are effectively arcs the first two arcs are pretty close adaptations to the show's first two episodes so the uncanny we have to say man spider here for for legal reasons <laughs> and the flying man bat again for legal reasons uh, then you have chapter three which is a loose a very loose i should say a loose adaptation of the cobra man episode of uh, the show and then from there, they just kind of just let Ishinomori go loose and do whatever he wants. And that, so the, the, that deviation well, is tied a little bit into the, the injury that uh, Fujioka takes on, but we'll, we'll get into that later. Yeah, we'll get there. So we'll start with chapter one, which is our beginning chapter, The Uncanny Man Spider. It's pretty similar to the show. You get the same villains, same story beats, but let's get into the differences. You got something here about a ring of lights. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a pretty crazy iconography here where 
he again he's on an operating table right so he has the ring of lights above oh, him what a genius like you would in a surgeon surgical theater right i did not appreciate but that but it that spins and spins and spins and when it spins it transitions to, into the the wheel spokes on yeah. a motorcycle oh, that's and so he cool. uses that as a transition both into uh the flashback and then out of the flashback which I think is just such genius artistic storytelling. Yeah, our iteration of Tachibana here also way is way different. Yeah, he looks very much like a very classic Oji-san type character. You know, bald head, big mustache, big nose, you know, white hair. Um, he's calling he's calling Hongo laddie, lad. It's not too far from what we see in the show, but at the same time it is like the aesthetics of it that make him feel like a completely different character to uh, the version that was portrayed by Ajiki Kobayashi. What's this note you've got about brotherly love? Yeah, so, uh, like I said, subtext is for cowards. <laughs> and and Ishinomori loves giving both our writers uh, segments where they just monologue. I love that, sincerely. Uh, and there's one about, like, bleeding just a very bleeding heart monologue about like brotherly love and that's how we move into the future you know like talking about how connections are are what will push us forward and not heavy industrialization it's it's fantastic you know you're gonna see more of this in future chapters but you know right from the get-go he's he's already on that yeah we also get a nice callback uh during this shocker segment where they do a volt and jolt test What's a volt and jolt? A volt and jolt. You know, like uh, you just zap a dude with 200,000 volts and mm. see if he's alive. It's like a callback to the production of the show. You know, like back when this was Crossfire, that was a very key element that yeah. they wanted to include in the show. And they never ended up putting it in the final uh, show, but I guess they didn't give that memo to Ishinomori, so... So tell me if I'm going uh, way too far out on a limb here, but just rereading these pages and like looking at Spider-Man, how he's different than he is in the the show, his design really evokes the imperial fascist Japanese flag. Oh yeah, with the uh, lines coming out from the mm-hmm. from the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we talked about in the show, how it sort of loses that Nazi right aesthetic right but i think the manga does a way better job at keeping it in the front and you know keeping it front and center right until the very end you know mm-hmm. like both in the designs of the monsters but also like the the schemes and you know their where those schemes are coming from and what they're based on yeah i can definitely see how someone could color Man Spider, <laughs> as uh, as the Imperial Japan flag. The powers and the like downside of them is a lot more front and center here. Like, and it's it's interesting because mm-hmm. it does come up in the show, and I think it comes up effectively. I, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a moment. Yeah, in the first few episodes, especially, you know, like you get that, but I think it here it feels like you said it's a lot more front and center. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more surmising about what it means to be human from Mm -hmm. Hongo. And I think that is the most interesting aspect of it. Because, again, when you're thinking about android stories or stories about synthetic humans at the time, you know, like, you have Astro Boy, uh, you have have 8-Man, right? But I think 
here it works so much because there is that nature element to it, that environmentalism element to it, you know, like the irony of a, of a synthetic man fighting for the sake of the environment. I think the other really cool thing that Ashinomori loves to do is splitting a single action across multiple panels. Right. You know, like even the, the quickest action, you know, you see each step of it and it comes up so, so often that, you know, there's no way that you're not going to notice it. But for me, I think it's also interesting because you then see how his approach to pacing and, and, um, laying out his pages then influences other artists. Like I mentioned before with Urasawa and how he approaches, uh, action. Let's get into chapter two. Yep. This is another more or less straight adaptation. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but before the show aired, uh, there were already two scripts written by Masaru Igami um, that were ready for production, uh, which were the Spider-Man episode and the Batman episode. Uh, so I assume that at this point, Ishinomori was just being told to work off of those two as a skeleton. For I, his, I was wondering uh, about that so much. Thank you for addressing it. I was trying to figure out what's the workflow here. Yeah, I mean, again, with this being weekly, right, you're, this is more or less starting around the same time that Fujioka has already left the show, mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, yeah, like 52 pages. Again, I, I can't say for certain just because I don't know. I don't have a copy of the magazine. It right, came out we don't know in, so how I don't far know, like, ahead Ishinomori was when he was like working on stuff. Well, I'm pretty sure he was behind in many respects. <laughs> like by the time he got to the Man Bat chapter, the Batman episode had already yet right. aired like several weeks before. Right. Uh, but yeah, like this is another fairly straight adaptation. Um, but there are key differences here too. Yeah, I mean, we see later on in the TV series that Shocker has some capacity to revive the monsters, and we see that right away here, where they re- they revive Spider-Man. And the augmentation aspect of it is also cool, because, yeah, like, we see it in the show, we see that with Cobra Man, he gets revived with new powers, but you never see that with other uh, Kaijin as much, so starting off with man spider being augmented you know and sending him alongside man bat i think is is really really cool you know like you don't really see the two-on-one kaijin fight uh for yeah, and then a good we get while to our man bat or batman uh fight and it's it's incredible i mean you see this uh art uniqueness earlier in the series but it's really front and center especially with um, Batman carrying Kamen Rider over the city. One thing about Ishinomori's work I love is mm-hmm. how he can switch up his line style. In In a lot of pages, we, we have a really thick line yeah. on a lot of our characters. Um, and then he kind of blends that in this double-page spread where Kamen Rider's got that, that thick line, but he's using some really cool hatching to do the shadow on Kamen Rider. The same thing can be said of Batman, but then he's going nuts on the hatching and the wings. And then the city is crazy detailed with these super thin lines. And what's what's really fun about that is how it inverts uh, this... Or it, 
it's it's interesting that like our front and center characters don't have a ton of detail there's the hatching obviously but then the city is hyper detailed and that's that kind of inverts a visual storytelling rule that you you would expect right it uh, like i mentioned before you know like him trying to synthesize the more classic manga style house style with uh you know gekiga because uh, again gekiga styling is at the time it was considered like the alternative comics you know like the more adult uh more detailed uh, style so ishinomori trying to bring that into what was poised as a more general shonen manga I think really set him apart from his contemporaries. The final fight with Batman is wild. <laughs> it's legitimately crazy. It is fucking insane. One other thing I want to bring up is uh, in the show we have Ruriko's friend Hiromi. Um, and she gets out fine, as in she gets written out of the show without any explanation. <laughs> but here, Hiromi gets infected by Man Bat. R.I.P. Uh, and also, she gets... She looks really, really cool when she's infected. I think the the effects do a decent enough job in the show of uh, showcasing if someone was infected. But here he does like this crazy, crazy, like everything about the way he portrays these like turned victims of Man Bat is done so well. Yeah. And then Hiromi dies here. Yeah. So you don't get that in the show folks yeah this this definitely feels like it's aimed for an older audience or or fuck it ashinomori's just being like i want to draw this yeah again a large part of this book really does seem like ishinomori going i'm going to do this and his editor's going okay do this (laughs) in the opening common writer's song i always was struck by the fact that shockers creatures are called demons from hell and uh, mm. they really are demons from hell here. Like this page on 196 where Common Rider starts like murdering Batman. Like it really reminds me of like a painting of Michael the Archangel, like fighting Satan, triumphing over Satan. Like he's tearing the wings off Batman while he's driving his boot through his skull. <laughs> like... Oh, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> That's almost religious. Just, it's so kinetic goes. too. It's yeah, so yeah. kinetic too. It's never nothing ever feels static. You know, like he's got these big, wide stances for his characters. You know, like when a character lunges forward, he puts his whole body into lunging forward. Yeah, Ishinomori so, is great at like weight and velocity. He's he's just he's mm-hmm. the god. You can really feel the power of a lunge in this manga. Yeah. Let's get it. But in. yeah, manga, Bat, Batman gets uh, crucifixed <laughs> to death. Right. The religious stuff staked. continues. <laughs> yeah. Incredible stuff. And then it's just a crazy way to end the chapter two with that uh, page long spread of uh, the crucifix. Yeah, and then Common Rider actually like expresses empathy for him, you know? Yeah. Uh, we, we get that a lot throughout this. This manga is like the kaijin are actual characters mm-hmm. you know like it's not just that they're the monster of the week they have their own motivations speaking and, you of, know yep oh speaking, speaking of, which, of which like yeah in the resurrected cobra man chapter three like 
that might be one of my favorite chapters in terms of kaijin characterization cobra man is depicted as just such a loser like you really feel sorry for him like he's really feels like this this low-level desperate gangster who's like gotten these shocker powers to try to prove something to someone like it's that's such a tragic story and like giving him a girlfriend is really fascinating that's something that does not even get remotely touched upon in the show uh, i i love and his this girlfriend chapter. is also a kaijin too right so it's like there is like that tragedy, that romantic tragedy of it, you know, and we'll we see it at the end. We'll we'll get there, but I want to mention here, this is where Ishinomori first explicitly mentions uh, the Minamata disease. Mm-hmm. So the Minamata disease, for those at home, um, it's a seaborne disease. It had been affecting uh, people uh, in Minamata. Uh, city uh, for about a decade at that point and so in the early 70s there were really strong protests to look into and stop uh, the causes of that which was the factories in the area causing that kind of pollution mercury poisoning getting into the fishes which were then eaten by the people uh, and to start this issue off, or to start this chapter off with these, you know, widespread protests, these very, very frenetic, very energetic uh, cries for help, I think is fantastic. Because, again, like the first two chapters are very, very by the books in some ways, you know, like, I... I you're right. I do wonder what the behind the scenes were uh, of the of the manga production because, like, this feels like Ishinomori finally loosening the shackles and and going crazy. There's this iconography, like three pages in, of a melting doll in a sea of toxic waste. Like Ishinomori does not back off. There's also a case, um, or. There's also a point where the Kawasaki air pollution uh, is mentioned. This is the cause of the Kawasaki disease. Uh, again, full bleeding heart, you know, Ishinomori really wants people to know. I think it's a great way to connect generations too. Because again, I didn't know about the Minamata disease before reading this. I didn't know about the Kawasaki disease before reading this. But it... You... <laughs> You would think that this is just a disease that, you know, is made up for the manga. But no, these are real diseases. This is the real world that he's starting to really bleed into into the manga. So I think chapter three is is such a huge leap in Ishinomori's own storytelling. Man, I just wish we could go back to when comics didn't have politics in them. God, you know, <laughs> what an apolitical book. Yeah. <laughs> the Kamen Rider's gone woke now. Yeah, Kamen Rider's gone woke, folks. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this chapter's crazy, you know? Like you got a scene of uh, Hongo exuberantly kicking the shit out of a dog. <laughs> God, that, those are some rough pages. It just keeps going. Do we mention... Uh, yeah, I think we, we mentioned, mentioned it, in the show... You don't yeah, want to be like, a dog in the Kamen Rider You don't want to be a dog. It's... 
doubly true in the comics. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be a dog in this universe. Uh, you have a note here about Coperman's neck getting crazy long. Uh, really yeah, fucking it's another- cool. It's a really cool thing, and it's one of those things where you definitely couldn't do that in this show. So, again, Shinomori's taking off the shackles. He's, you know, he's doing all the things that he wants to do. You know, like, you want to do... <laughs> you want to do a man with an elongated neck, you know, doing some crazy shit? You got it. Yeah. Um, I just, I love this chapter as like again almost empathizing with cobra man and his girlfriend like they really are just these losers who have tried to like eke out some type of meaning by going to shocker yeah them getting like screamed at and then like him going back for the augmentations again it's it's really fucking desperate and the the kaijin characterization never approaches that level of um depth and pathos in the show so it's really really fun stuff here yeah i think you might get it like one or two i think in early into hayato's tenure there's one or two episodes where there is a bit of pathology there but yeah for the most part it never goes as deep as this no there is one actually and that's the one that ashinomori directs ah yes that's right that is correct (laughs) So then we get into chapter four, the thirteen common writers. This is actually wait before oh, we get into that. Hold on, I want to. There's two more points I want to make. Yeah, yeah. So the Cobra Man chapter also takes a weird left turn, uh, partway through, where it actually starts following the plot of the Cobra Man episode again with the gold bars, mm-hmm. which I thought was really weird. Another thing where I really wish I was uh, a fly on the wall of the production at the time just to know why that happened because i feel like shinomori was going with all this momentum on the environmental aspect of it and then the editors caught on we're like oh whoa 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 you gotta you gotta adopt the show here buddy (laughs) yeah i get that feeling too but then he immediately comes back with doing the craziest shit of making cobra man's girlfriend medusa kill cobra man by accident (laughs) then kill herself by way of getting her snakes, again, this is, she has snakes on her head that shoot lasers, <laughs> and she gets those snakes to shoot into the back of her skull. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, I love this book. It's, it's just so Incredible. rereadable. There's, there's so much you can chew on here. Yeah, this is like my second or third read through of this, and it never gets old. I mean, and also, too, like... I, I this this book has partly reignited my love for drawing and I'm just just doing it for fun but like there's so much I can reference here for like uh like line technique and hatching technique uh the the irony I will say is I love Ishinomori but it's hysterical that he did not understand anatomy um like a really f- recognizable aspect of common writer's look is his sort of front piece which you think is maybe meant to evoke like a bug carapace but like no that's actually mm-hmm. how ishinomori draws pecs and abs on a person as well like yeah when I'm looking at pa- like you see it in the first few pages with the almost nude hongo but on page 285 you see those very strange pecs and abs and then his arms are flexed too and he he can't quite do a biceps or triceps it's all just kind of one thing <laughs> 
But I mean, I, I yeah, like it. I dig it. It's it's his it's style. good. It's it's very stylized. Yeah. I think in light of the recent you know Frank Miller art debates, I think it's very fun to go back to this and be like, yeah, yeah, go crazy. You know that guy doesn't need a bicep. Yeah, the yeah. Midnight Grappler Animals take on Frank Miller is uh, listen to our episode. Yeah, listen to our episode. We got an episode on that. Yeah, I already covered that. Anything else so on yeah, Coverman chap- before 13 Common Riders? Mm, nope. Let's dive right into Chapter 4, the 13 Common Riders. The- so, again, by this point, you're about like halfway into the year. Uh, the Shocker Rider arc has yet to happen. It won't happen for another one and a half years, I want to say. And, again, I assume that they had just run out of material to give Tishinomori to work with, (laughs) because from this point, it just deviates heavily from the show. There's very little from this that can be mapped onto the show. Yeah, so, the, the plot heavily deviates upon Fujioka's yeah. real-life accident with Ishinomori writing in Ichimonji as a shocker writer turned good and turns... Well, Hongo just dies during this. Yeah, Hongo just fucking dies. Yes, yeah. he's, he's ambushed by the, the shocker writers, of which Ichimonji is one, and then Hongo's turned into, like, a, a living brain... <laughs> Yeah, he's like the man in the chair for a while, yeah. where where he's just like a brain, a doing Hongo brain, brain telepathy. <laughs> yeah, he's doing telepathy, and uh, it's funny because they then bring this into the show. I mentioned that the the manga ends right before the show gets to Hongo's return, but like one of the first things you see with Hongo's return is that telepathy, and it doesn't come into the show after that one episode. Like, no, it's just like, that we one have... time. They're like. <laughs> We have we a have telepathic connection. <laughs> yeah, we got this telepathic connection. We're not going to do anything else with it, though. Uh, but yeah, like, again, by this point, you know, Hayato's been in the show for, I want to say, like, a s- several months, right? So, to... S- and again, in the show, Hayato is just, like, a photographer. He He shows up randomly you know like he gives you this explanation that he was also turned into a a common rider but then hongo saved him nothing like that here you know like it, this is a far cry you know this ichimonji is a journalist he's a photojournalist he yeah the the shocker rider aspect of it we should talk about that because yeah. that is a crazy thing to do because it's not like because again hongo was made to be a shocker rider you know, he was saved before he could turn. But Ichimonji went all the way. He got turned before uh, he became good. Right, and I think that's really key because in the show, obviously in episode one, we see that whole ordeal happen to Hongo, right? Like the, the reason he's a good guy is they didn't operate on his morality or whatever it was. But in the... Uh, when we introduce Ichimonji, like that's all explained away in two sentences. So that's all to say that the Ichimonji shocker writer character of the comic is a way more compelling characterization for Ichimonji. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also the way he turns good is getting shot in the head. <laughs> oh yeah. That's another fascinating difference. I was looking really closely for uh, guns in the common writer show. 
I believe guns appear twice. Never used by Shocker, but guns come up a lot more in the comic. And I'm wondering if that was like a TV regulation or a budgetary constraint. But that that does separate. The sure, two. it's a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, when Hongo dies, he's he's just riddled with bullets. Like, yeah, <laughs> you get this. So the whole people circling around the main character iconography you'll see that in the show you'll see that in subsequent uh, reimaginings of this uh, this story but you know like here they circle around him and then they just fire upon him yeah when, just when, straight up execution when our protagonists are circled around in say the 71 show it's about as threatening as like musical dancing gangsters right <laughs> Like, right here it's it, it's a death sentence yeah but don't worry folks hongo didn't die die his body died but he's now a brain in a jar giving <laughs> and the panel he reveals that on is so funny <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's really abrupt um anything else here before we get into chapter five village of the sea demon nope i think that's it for this one Cool. Um, now, you have a note here about the Minasoko-Minamata connection. What's that mean? Yeah, so we learned that Hayato is from uh, a little town called Minasoko, and Minasoko isn't a real place. But, you know, given the connection to the Minamata disease in previous chapters, and also just a lot of the talk about pollution in this chapter, I it's it becomes a very evident that Ishinomori wanted to use this chapter to again push that environmental angle and push that, you know, like anti-pollution uh, element here. Mm-hmm. We see uh, Hayato's father here in the village, and he is the biggest schnoz. And while he is huge, <laughs> while we said huge. like no it's... other character in this manga has a nose as big as him. <laughs> while we said, you know, it's not accurate to say that. Uh, Ishinomori is like a total, totally influenced by Tezuka. There is still that Tezuka influence. It is definitely in here. Yeah, this is like the the one, this is the one place where it is undeniable. And you do see this <laughs> that, type of nose appear in, say, the Cyborg 009 characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some wild stuff here with stuff that could never be done in the show. Like you have sharks with bombs attached to them and manta rays flying through the sky. You know, it's not only stuff that wouldn't work for television. It's this very, like, surreal fever dream stuff that comics was meant for. Yeah, exactly. He's really pushing the boundary of what, you know, he can do with the realm of reality. And so, you know, like, the iconography here, the visuals here, it's very much a you-can-only-do-this-in-the-manga kind of thing. Yeah, and speaking of stuff you can only do in the manga, this ends with Common Rider breaking out of a dead whale. It's, it's really impeccable. Cool. Yeah, fantastic way to end chapter. I'm, and you know, I don't want to go too deep into it, but it, it should be noted too that we're getting some uh, different kaijin at this point than we got in the show, and the designs are all really cool. Hmm. Yeah, I mean this this is. A fairly short chapter, I think, um, but it's a pretty good solo adventure for Ichimonji, and I think it does a better job of establishing him as a solo character uh, than the show did for a while. 
Chapter 6, The World of Masks. Yeah, we've been saying that this manga is wild, you know, repeatedly, but this truly is the wildest chapter of the the book. And it starts yeah. off with a banger quote, too. It says, All people wear masks. Beneath that mask lies their true face. And then it's followed by a Kamen Rider toy mask being knocked off a kid's face. You know, again, by this point, Kamen Rider had become a very popular household name. You know, like the popularity of the toys and everything were really, really going going crazy at this point. So Ishinomori is really starting to play into this, too. You know, like with the kids having Kamen Rider at toys, you know, doing make-believe. And, yeah, it, it immediately stumbles into something not stumbles but immediately transitions into something even crazier yeah there's layers with the visual symbolism playing into the writing this is working on so many levels here um we've we've got these Ishinomori <laughs> was truly crazy for this one. The kids are playing. The ma- the masks get knocked off during the game, and they stumble upon a headless body. Yeah, <laughs> like just in their fucking like <laughs> just a random body, just a random headless body. <laughs> yeah, there's a headless body of a man in this like little back lot they're playing in, and then it, the way the the panels are organized here is so marvelous. Then we do see a head in the next panel semi-disembodied but it's the head of the prime minister as cropped by the television and i I gotta read this the uh the prime minister is saying on the television violence in any form is completely unacceptable japan is a nation of peace as is stipulated in our constitution the idea of us bringing in nuclear weapons is ridiculous truly the the criticisms that we're growing more militaristic or groundless. This is Ishinomori getting his shit off saying, fuck the prime minister. <laughs> this guy's a yeah, these are These <laughs> are pure Sato talking points. You know, like this yeah. is like one-to-one, the exact same shit he, he's talking about. And the, the prime minister in this one also looks very similar to Sato himself. Again, it is insane that he got away with this. Yes. And, uh, you know, this all just really appreciate makes me appreciate the connection between the original series and Black Sun. Like, I really get mm-hmm. now how Black Sun was evoking the, the grit of the original Kamen Rider. Right. Yeah, yeah you uh, also awesome get some, some showboating here. <laughs> you also get some showboating here with uh, uh, Ichimonji uh, bringing up the manga. Mm-hmm. The common writer manga within a manga, <laughs> which I think is some next level showboating from Ishinomori. You know, being like, "Yeah, I got this popular manga, and I'm gonna talk about it in my manga." <laughs> <laughs> there's a funny bit too in the sa- there's so much going on in the sequence. Like Ishinomori rocks at action and violence, but he he can have characters just interacting too and make it magical. There's this sequence too with like porn coming on the tv and like hayato is pissed mm-hmm. off that this would be on at daytime hours when a kid might see it it's it's a really funny sequence yeah it's incredible stuff this chapter also brings two brings two new characters uh into the fold uh junko and her younger brother koji i found it interesting that they brought this 
I find it interesting that Junko from this is then adapted into uh, Kamen Rider V3. Uh, it seems mm. like it had mm. enough of an influencer. I see Her character in this was strong enough to pretty much be adapted 1 to 1.1, I want to say, into the into the show. You know, like the whole thing with the will they, won't they between her and uh, Hayato. Right, I haven't um, thought of that. This is where that get that groundwork is laid. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot, you know, that, that they're starting to, to take. And again, this is late 1971, so they wouldn't touch on it for another year and a half. But yeah, I mean... This chapter is fantastic. You know, <laughs> there's a part where uh, Hayato's also encountered by a circle of motorcycle mm-hmm. riders, and when he fights them, one of them says, "This ain't some manga for kids," <laughs> which it's a it's a funny gag, but also I think it it could be read as meta text from Ishinomori himself. You know, like saying that this isn't meant to just be a kids manga. This is meant to also be something more manga kids manga can be something more mm-hmm. yeah um, so yeah ahead. again there's some there's some really good commentary here about japanese politics and younger folk falling uh into anti-government groups uncritically and again you mentioned the connection between uh this and black sun you know like for me uh, it really does feel like the gorgum connection there you know like gorgum mm. in the 70s being a a revolutionary anti-government group, which was then twisted into, you know, the Gorgon of the modern day. And we get a, something similar here with uh, this character who, you know, does turn out to be an actual shocker agent, but uh, talking about how, you know, her mistrust in the government was what caused her to fall in line with shocker. Right. Uh, the part where she's revealed to be a shocker agent, I, I think in a modern sense, it could be read as a bit transphobic. Um, I don't want to excuse that, but in an art sense, this is really Ishinomori like getting his shit off because this this character goes through like two transformations. It, it could have been one, but he he felt like drawing two transformations. Yeah, um, he's like you probably. <laughs> You thought I was a woman. I'm not a woman. I'm a, I'm a man. But no, you didn't. You thought I was a man, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a not bug. a man. I'm actually I'm a monster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, pretty rad. Uh, so a character I really want to talk about in this chapter is Taki. Um, you know, when we were alluding to Taki in part one, like Taki's a joy in the show just because. Chiba is like superhuman. The stunts he's doing are insane in that show. Like he's not just doing tumbling and karate. He's doing parkour. He's he's doing all of it. Um, but you know that said, it's it is weird that this nominally progressive idea of this environmental hero is being aided by an FBI agent. Like that's not great. He's way different in the comic. Like where yeah, it's like, a lot more critical about him. You know, like. Yeah. He is very much a shady presence that, you know, is a very uneasy alliance mm-hmm. to be made there. I thought it was cute that instead of being named Kazuya Taki, he's Jiro named Taki. Jiro Taki yeah. in this That's one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, did, I really liked, um, it, if I'm reading into it, it feels like a, um, I don't want to say begrudging, but it's, 
it's it's an awareness on Ishinomori's part. Like, okay, this character exists in the show. I'll put him in here, but I'm gonna do it my way. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. The one, the other, the other thing I want to mention is uh, with Koji, the other character that's introduced here. Uh, he's this little boy that's ailing from leukemia. And there's some really good commentary on nuclear weaponry in this chapter. You know, like Koji's leukemia coming from the after effects of the Hiroshima bombing. Um, you know, like all the talks about demilitarization and Japan's own takes on nuclear weaponry. Because again, at the time, with Sato's government, there was a lot, um, a lot of furor about the state of nuclear weaponry within Japan. Uh, so Ishinomori, again, bleeding heart, goes full force with the political commentary in this one. And even at the end, when we get our... The other thing I want to mention is there's no great leader of Shocker here. <laughs> the great leader is Big Machine. His, <laughs> his name is Big Machine. So cool. Big Machine is this, like... If you've seen Starman from Earthbound... You know, he looks like Starman from Earthbound. He's most likely based on Gort from the the day the Earth stood still. But yeah, he's this like big. He's a big machine. Weird, or not, folks. He's a big machine. He's a big. <laughs> yeah, he's a big machine, guys. So wait, this this uh, does. Oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt your next point. No, no, no go ahead, go ahead. Well, this did lead me to another question I'd been ruminating on in terms of the show and the kaijin design. So when I look at Big Machine, he's got this sort of tubular michelin man look and we see that with like a lobster kaijin earlier here that's also something we do see in the show right you know what i mean when i'm saying this michelin man type thing? right 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 like yeah. we see it with ambassador hell we see it with zangio in the common writer versus shocker movie movie uh and i was just wondering if you knew to what extent uh ishinomori was influencing or handling kaijin designs on the show I think he was working on designs for the show, but mm -hmm. I don't think he was doing all of them. Yeah. So I assume that, you know, there is probably some back and forth uh, here and there, but... It's yeah, just, it's think, fascinating it, to see it, that continuity is, in design. It, yeah, I think the Michelin Man look is also just a very classic kaijin design. Like, if you look back to Zeton from from Ultraman, right? It's the right. same thing, but in, but in black. The materials right, so lend themselves well to that type of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but yeah, as I was mentioning before, Big Machine reveals that the October Project, their big scheme to take over Japan, is rooted in Japan's own deliberations about regulating systems with the code system. Yeah, what was that which about? Which is insane. I tried looking <laughs> into this more and... I couldn't really find anything based off of keywords, but if I can find something, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. So I have a theory, and that's mm -hmm. that, and I mean this as respectfully as possible, that Ashinomori was a bit of a crank. I mean, <laughs> Just a slight bit, yeah. yeah. But I mean that respectfully. Like, I'm a bit of a crank in certain ways. A lot of people I like are, are kind of cranks. Like, you, you had that awesome photo you were sharing on Twitter. <laughs> Shinomori a little bit buzzed posing in front of his little pyramid yeah his roof. pyramid power <laughs> I'm gonna think about that forever yeah he's a he's a free thinker folks that's right he's fantastic <laughs> and then... uh, but yeah it, it, again he is so forward about his like mistrust 
in the Japanese government, and I honestly don't think you're going to get that from most, if not all, mangaka nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I even in seinen manga, there's very few that are willing to engage with the politics as critically as Shinomori was here. Yeah, he's a real bleeding heart lefty, and it's real fun. And then we get our return of Hongo. Uh, yeah, then, he was like surprisingly absent for the majority of this chapter. Like, not even a single, uh, you know, telepathic message or anything, which makes sense because he was probably being reconstructed while while all this was going on. You but, have to assume because none of that's explained. He's just there. yeah, none of that's explained. <laughs> he, he just shows up. And it's in the great. Final it's battle. fine. I'm not complaining yeah. at all. It rocks. So they, they beat Big Machine by turning his own powers against him. Classic sense. And you had a really great note about the Doctor. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> earlier in the chapter, uh, Taki and Hayato are like, oh, there's no one that could help save uh, Koji from his leukemia, but we're sure we can probably get one of Shocker's doctors to, you know, they're trying to Operation Paperclip one of Shocker's doctors. Into right, we're going to infiltrate, saving- we're going to steal a Shocker doctor. Yeah, we're going to steal Shocker Doctor and save Koji. And then they escape the exploding base, which is killing pretty much every Shocker uh, scientist, agent, whatever, in there, right? And there's this throwaway line where they're like, oh, wait, we forgot the Doctor. (laughs) He's just got to tie it all up. Yeah, again, the ending is a bit rushed. Uh, Just a whole bunch of things coalescing uh, at once. But, like, I assume that... By that point, Ishinomori was told to, you know, move on to something else, so he had to. But it's it leads to something very unintentionally funny where they're just like, oops, forgot the doctor, and then the next scene is Koji dying of cancer. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to read into those politics a bit more because he's... So Koji's dying of, of cancer. Taki is laid up in his hospital bed. And then we see the Prime Minister on TV again. And they're saying, Mr. Prime Minister, what will you do about this? Tell us, what will you do? The entire cabinet must resign. The Prime Minister says, I won't do it. I won't resign. And I think that's really fascinating that the, you know, this, I don't want to say it's cynical, but this this series does end on kind of a a dark note. You know, they didn't didn't get the shocker, Doctor. Uh, Koji dies. The prime minister is revealed to have some level of complicitness or complacency with Shocker uh, working with the government, and he's caught in this scandal, and nothing happens. Yeah, it it is very much a you know like the hero doesn't get that absolute win that you get in other other books, and like I do wonder if there would have been a different ending had Ishinomori you know, worked on this longer, or had been given the time to uh, work on this longer. But yeah, it does lead to a very interesting ending, you know, like, given what we have. Yeah, I, I mean, I like it a lot, because, you know, we did the whole watch through, you know, we did, we watched yeah. the, the whole series, we watched a couple episodes of V3, and Common Rider 1, and I I felt like you really had to watch all of that to get closure. You don't really get the closure from the series itself. And I think mm-hmm. this comic provides itself a lot more closure within its own pages. 
Yeah, it really does feel like a, the fight will continue on kind of kind of ending, which is a nice way, I guess. Like it is bleak, but it is more like a well, we know that both of our common riders are fine and they will continue this fight, you know, be it shocker whoever comes up in their in their stead, right? Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on the comic? It's dope. If you haven't read it already, you should read it. Um, tell your local publishers to start localizing more Ishinomori books. I'm trying to read more Ishinomori books, not in French. So, again, email your email your publishers. I think Seven Seas actually does like a monthly poll where they oh, ask, sick. you know, like readers for suggestions as to what they should uh, license next but yeah i have no idea given the comicsology because comicsology had licensed all of ishinomori's work when they did so i have no idea if that's expired or if that went down with the ship i have no idea if it prevents people from getting those other books i am going to jeff bezos's house with a you heard it here folks you heard it here, folks. Um, message your local senator. Tell him to <laughs> to get more Ishinomori in the in the system. Did I hear that Eminem won a Senate race, like a state Senate race? What? I I, I thought I heard something about that. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> um, so this was part two of our uh, month of the mask. Do you want to talk a bit about what part three will be? Yeah. So next up, we have. I believe it's going to be Common Rider the First and the Next, which is the 2005 reinterpretation of the original series. Two movies, one writer, two directors, two writers, three writers actually, and a whole bunch of craziness await for you in the next episode of Month of the Mask. Our tastemakers grab bag wherein we recommend our... Uh, movies and books and stuff we've been checking out recently my recommendation is drive no not the ryan gosling drive you probably know for its iconic soundtrack this is 1997 drive with friend of the pod mark Dis- mark to costcos i mean well we can we gotta get him on the pod we, we actually do. have to get him on the pod i mean his his wife is essentially a friend of the pod now right yeah yeah <laughs> i made a tweet about mark Tacascos and mark Tacascos's wife liked the tweet so i think i'm one step away from getting him on the podcast oh i god i hope you're right i would love to get mark Tacascos on the pod uh this is mark Tacascos at his peak uh this is a sort of uh low budget uh like road trip movie but it's really fascinating also how it's a missing link between t2 and the matrix uh you can kind of see it as like an evolution chart in that sense there's a really fascinating shot towards the end where um mark dacascos is wailing on our big bad and he does this like flurry of punches that i kid you not is shot for shot repeated in the matrix i know it's a must be shocking to people to hear that the matrix lifted from other movies but uh it's it's cool to see that stuff we love Mark. We love Mark. Mark, please come on the Mark, please come on the podcast. <laughs> uh, for me, it's also pretty short because we already did our recommendations in our in, in part one. But for me, I this time around, uh, I recommend Green Room, the 2015 film by uh, something something Saulnier. Uh, let me dignify him by actually pulling up his name. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Live on the pod, flubs Jeremy Saulnier. Or Solnir. Uh It is a movie that you should watch if you love 
punk rockers uh, killing Nazis. Uh, it's got Patrick Stewart as a as a neo Nazi in it. Uh, it's every film that Eli Roth has been trying to make for the past decade or two, um, except an actual success. Uh, it's great. It's a great movie. Yeah, I've been meaning to check it out. So. <clears throat> that is our episode. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can email us at midnightgrapplernimals at gmail.com. If you haven't gotten on our Patreon yet, for $5 a month, you can get an extra episode uh, every week. So that's four episodes a month. Uh, you can, for $1 a month, get our show notes. You can also follow us on Discord. We have a Discord. It's popping off. We'd love to have you in there. You can follow us on Twitter at Land Tweets or at Salt and Bank. I've spelled those out in the episode description. The other thing you can do, especially if you uh, don't don't have the cheddar right now to support a Patreon, we get it. How can you support instead? Leave us a good review. That would be so cool of you. Five stars. Don't fuck around with this four star, three star business. Get out of here. Not trying to impress anybody with that. Five stars, baby. Good show. Say it's a great show. Please, Answer. please. <laughs> please and thanks for listening